I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to episode 64 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Sharon Donnan. Sharon, along with small farmers and hand weavers in Louisiana, are working towards reviving Acadian brown cotton. In our conversation, we talk about Sharon's wonderful journey towards creating the documentary film Coton Jaune, Acadian Brown Cotton, Acadian Love Story, which dives into the fascinating and little-known history of hand-weaving and brown cotton in Louisiana. Hey, Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So wonderful to be here. Can you start out by telling us a bit about your background and how you found your way into the world of Acadian brown cotton? Oh, my goodness. Yes, indeed, I can. I actually trained as a textile conservator at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the Abeg Stiftung in Switzerland. And uh, I sort of grew up around textiles and costume and 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 fashion. Um, my first job was in a retail shop that was very well known here in Los Angeles. And it was really there that I developed an appreciation of really fine fabric. And uh, uh, gee, not long, not too long after that, I started collecting ethnic clothing and, and developing another appreciation for how things are made. Um, probably into my 30s, that was when I began my museum career. Uh, I did archaeology in Peru, and I served as the textile conservator, actually helping to excavate, analyze, and preserve the uh, ancient textiles that were being excavated on the north coast of Peru. <clears throat> Pardon me. And that's really where my appreciation of weaving came into being. Uh, the uh, ancient weavings of Peru, if anyone is familiar, are really are equal to none. And on the north coast of Peru, the preservation was excellent. So um, uh, being at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, they have an enormous collection of costumes and textiles. And uh, I really, as a conservator, I, I had the honor and the pleasure of working on many of those pieces. Uh, gradually, I began to want to do my own work, my own study, and um, I was looking at a particular fiber in Mexico that I found uh, used in the embroidery of belts, which were very, very popular in the 90s, uh, that, that were worn by members of musical groups. And I, I just took one look at them, and I knew there was a big story there. So that took me down to Mexico. So tying this together and trying to be somewhat brief, LaShawn, that's hard for me when you get me started talking about Acadian brown cotton. <laughs> I, ha I had excavated brown natural brown cotton uh, on the north coast of Peru, so I knew that it existed. And uh, I also understood and had seen, actually, and, and bought a couple of pieces of contemporary brown cotton uh, on the north coast of Peru, actually up the 
further up the river valley was where the weaving was being done, not along the coast. And then when I was in Mexico and working on the pita fiber used in the embroidery of the belts, uh, I was in Oaxaca and became very much aware of the brown cotton tradition there called um, coyuchi. So uh, music, music and dance led me to Louisiana. Um, I just I, I fell in love with it here where I live in Los Angeles and I thought, oh, this is such this is such great music. I have to I I have to know more about the people who created it. So that began uh, 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 to this day a real love affair with with Acadiana, with Southwest Louisiana, the culture, the people. Uh, I did a short documentary on Mr. Howard Citizen, who is a, a Creole born and, and raised in Southwest Louisiana, French speaking until he was about 14. And uh, that that was very, very well received in, in Louisiana. And uh, so I just kept going. And I, by that time, had a number of friends and, and close people close to me. And we, of course, loved doing the, the yard sales. Well, it was one of these afternoons where we'd gone to a major uh, flea market in a little town called Washington, Louisiana. And there in the old schoolhouse, which had been converted into a, a very large flea market, um, I saw on one of the racks of the textiles, which was always my first stop to see what anyone was offering in the way of textiles, I pulled out these blankets and I was with Suzanne, who who was a co-producer on the film, the documentary film, Acadian Brown, Cotton Jean, Acadian Brown Cotton, A Cajun Love Story. And I pulled out this blanket, which, which was a brown and white stripe. And I looked at Suzanne and I said, Suzanne, this is brown cotton. And I said, what, what, what are these? She said, those are old Cajun blankets. Everybody has them. And, you know, what's the big deal? I said, it's a really big deal. I've seen brown cotton in Peru and in Mexico, two other places where I've spent a good deal of time uh, learning about the culture and, and the textile tradition. And now in Louisiana, completely unbeknownst to me, I discovered, um, previously unbeknownst to me, I discovered a 250-year-old weaving tradition that used brown cotton. And I thought, oh, this is just too good. This has got all the visual and all of the textural and all of the, the history behind it. So this is really ripe and ready for a documentary film. And that's how we started. Uh, I later, oh, maybe two or three years later, gave a presentation at the um, Southeastern Fiber Arts group in, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And it was there I met the woman whose father had actually bought that old high school and turned it into a flea market. So she was absolutely thrilled. She's she's a weaver and a spinner and um, lives close to Atlanta and she was just well we were all in tears her father had passed not mm. not too long before that but she was so thrilled to to know that that was really the birthplace for this film and and really the um the revitalization of this tradition so um then we we made the film we collected all the oral histories on people who still either had blankets that had been woven by their grandmothers, great-grandmothers, 
um, or could share their stories with us. So um, I'll, I'll let you ask another question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. I mean, you're providing so much information. It's so insightful to kind of hear of the journey and how things sort of naturally unfolded. I'll definitely have to make sure that I get links to if they're available online to the film that you produced, because I'm sure people are super interested in watching it. Uh, we've we've done very very well with it, and it's it's really brought me into the world of the spinning and weaving guilds here in the United States. And I have given that presentation, screened the film, and talked about our sustainable organic uh, project endeavor that we are are now involved in. And that's another interesting part of the story. And you know, I I want to uh, just give a shout out for documentary films because uh, they really do serve a tremendous purpose in, in our lives today. And it, it's just such a, a wonderful vehicle for telling stories. And um, so in tw- 2015, our, our film premiered a special uh, event organized by Cinema on the Bayou, my, my, my favorite film festival. And, um, we broke all records, all attendance records. The Cajuns just turned out by the droves, and, and everyone had a story, and, and it was just so well-received. Uh, shortly after that, one of the guilds in Savannah asked me to come and screen the film there, which I did, and I met several people there who belonged to the Textile Society of America, and they encouraged me to um, apply to screen the film at, at the meetings that would be the following year in Savannah. Well, I fell in love with Savannah. I fell in love with Suzanne Hokinson and the members of that guild, and um, I did exactly what they asked me to do. So in 2016, we screened the film for the Textile Society of America. And again, uh, very well received, but more importantly, I was able to go and participate and and witness the amazing um, uh, presentations given by women from all over the world who were developing um, almost cottage industries around based on cotton and doing it sustainably, organically, and with uh, great attention to social justice issues for for the workers involved. And I thought, gee, well, why can't we do that in Louisiana? We have uh, an economy that needs bolstering. We have the skills. We have Cajun ingenuity. And I, 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 I call it putting it togetherness, you know, people <laughs> there have, have an ability. I, I, I was not a hundred percent familiar with rural life until I got into this project. And I just could see where people know how to do things that they don't have all the ingredients. They just figure it out and make do. And Cajuns are very much that way. So uh, I thought if this project could be successful, if we could replicate with these Amala and India um, and Mexico, uh, we would really, we'd, we'd really be doing something that, that could serve everyone in Louisiana, would be historic preservation, um, creating an industry that, that 
was once there and later outsourced. So we started and we started by having conversations that matter, which is a world cafe format. And uh, about 70 people showed up at Vermilionville, which is the um, uh, historic village in, in Lafayette, which is sort of the, the hub of um, Acadiana, all this, the French-speaking parishes of southwest Louisiana. And uh, we had, oh my goodness, we had designers, we had farmers, we had uh, State Department of Agriculture, we had politicians, anthropologists, weavers, spinners, everyone just showed up and we had group discussions, simultaneous discussions, so that everyone had an opportunity to meet with everyone else in the room and write down their ideas about what we should do. How could we get this off the ground? What was the future for Acadian brown cotton? Which is an heirloom seed and was produced, is still actually, there were maybe, by the time I started doing the research for the film, I knew of two people who were still growing Acadian brown cotton and still weaving. So, um, the first thing that came up was that we need to preserve the seed and the University of Louisiana in Lafayette has a research farm called out in Cade. It's called actually called the Cade Research Facility. Uh, and they had received a very large grant and successfully had built a seed banking facility with, with all of the kinds of storage and drying rooms cold storage, freezer compartments, everything required for the preservation of seeds. And uh, we were more than fortunate to have um, been included in this project. So the Cade Research Farm has planted, they planted that, that second year in 2017. And, uh, and all of the seed that they, all the, the cotton that they're growing there will go into the seed bank. So that was first on our list, and we were very successful in doing that and are grateful, eternally grateful to the university and that whole geosciences department. So um, then from there, we started looking for farmers who would be interested. And we, had, uh, we were sanctioned by the State Department of Agriculture and Forestry because there is still the issue of boll weevil, and there is a boll weevil eradication program there. And we have partnered with them from the get-go. So um, the first year we planted, uh, we just really was pretty experimental. And not too many people were, well, we had about three or four farmers. And, um, and we did pretty well, given that there was an incredible amount of rain that first year. That's super interesting. Is Acadian brown cotton able to be produced commercially? Uh, no, it never has been produced commercially. <clears throat> and uh, I, I know Sally Fox has done extensive research and uh, she's, not, she's not using the Acadian brown, but I, I think she's probably the closest we have to somebody producing commercially uh, a short staple colored cotton. Um, <clears throat> and the, the, the Acadian people only produce this for their personal use and uh, they lived in such a remote area it was never an issue about cross-pollinating with the white cotton and 
because all of the white cotton that's produced in Louisiana is done in central and north central Louisiana, I don't think that we are in danger, uh, endangering any of their crops. <clears throat> and that's what the Department of uh, Agriculture and Forestry has told us, that we're, we're, we're okay. And how big this is actually going to get and how commercial our project will be, I, I don't really know. Um, I'm a great fan of Amy Dufault. She's head of the fiber shed in the northeastern United States, based in Cape Cod. And um, she's encouraged me. She's actually written a lot about this and, and just taking baby steps when when we're doing projects like that, like this one. And, and I we are taking baby steps. We've grown enormously just in two short years. So it's, it's future as a commercial product. I'm not sure. I, I really, I don't know. So, uh, and, and the short staple, of course, makes it difficult to spin. And, um, but, you know, those, uh, those Acadian women did it. And I, 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 I just, uh, we're going to take, take our baby steps until something comes up that we can't take anymore. So we'll see. Yeah, I've seen images of the Acadian brown blankets from New Orleans, and they're gorgeous. I mean, like, some of the most beautiful um, weaving that I've seen. And so to know that those blankets come from completely hand-spun and also um, short staple of cotton, I mean, that's really remarkable. And you as a weaver would certainly know that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And uh, and certain aspects of this that I've become aware of since I made the film, had I had I known more about the weaving tradition and and its its very unique qualities before I made the film, before I started the research, you know, would have I, I would have certainly included this. But apparently, the carding is very a very important step in this and. Gladys Clark, who is really responsible for bringing this tradition into the 20th century, and her apprentice, uh, Elaine Bork, who is um, my partner uh, on a lot of this now, and she is, she is the person who has carried it into the 21st century, are master carders. And Miss um, Clark was known to have gotten at least three Rolags, and her mother as well, three Rolags off of a single card. And Elaine can do two masterfully. So, um, uh, you know, there are ways of getting around that short staple, and these Acadian women found those those ways to do that. Hmm. And can you talk about the origins and the ancestral connection of Acadian brown cotton seed to New Orleans and maybe other cultures? Well, we what we have discovered so far, and there will be uh, further studies because now we are affiliated with the university and um as they are banking the seed, they uh, the biology department would like to continue further studies uh, to know exactly what the genetic makeup is of, of this seed that we're calling Acadian brown cotton, which is a local eco-type seed, meaning that it has been grown in a specific area 
over a long period of time. So we know that it is most like the Mexican seed, although not identical. And uh, the Peruvian seed is a Barbadense, and we are a hirsutum, like the Mexican seed. So how it actually got to Louisiana, we don't know. We have no proof whether it was carried uh, along with the cattle that came in from Mexico in the 1700s, late 1700s, or whether it was blown across along with the corn and the beans and the squash. Um, we just don't know, and I don't know that we'll ever know that. Uh, somehow, the Acadian people who, who landed in Louisiana in the early 1700s already were very accomplished weavers. They brought with them from France to Nova Scotia, Canada, and then down to Louisiana. Their skill and their their knowledge of fiber and, and weaving, carding, spinning, and weaving. But uh, in France and in, in uh, Nova Scotia, they, of course, were weaving flax and wool. And when they came to Louisiana, there was no flax and there was no need for wool. So um, somewhere, and we again, uh, gee, I wish I knew, believe me, uh, they discovered this brown cotton and started growing it, which, of course, increased their, their color palette and um, were very pleased to, ha to have it and to um, allowing them to become more artistic in, in the blankets that they wove. And the blankets were all part of a dowry. So um, when daughters were born, mothers probably started weaving almost immediately because the, the the bridal trousseau is quite extensive, involves 12 blankets, sheets, towels, all of the household linens would have been hand spun and hand woven. And wow. we have just absolutely amazing examples of this. Now, Elaine Bork is, uh, has, had started when I first met her in, I think it was probably 2012. She had already begun the process of recording and documenting blankets that remained in the families of the weavers and handed down from generation to generation. And she was, had embarked on an enormous project, which has grown probably oh, 50 times since 2012. And she has come in contact with so many more people who do have the blankets. And because of the film, primarily people began to value them and cherish them and understand that a little bit more about them and, and what great treasures they are. So we have um, done a, a rather shuro, a thorough pardon me, analysis of the blankets and um, maintained a standardized analysis and have, are really learning on a daily basis all kinds of, of new information that we wouldn't have if we didn't have this uh, database. So Elaine um, really set out to acknowledge the women that she felt were never recognized for the amazing work that they did, uh, in addition to raising children, having full days of farming and household duties, and then find the time to, to weave these extensive trousseaus. 
Um, we have uh, also been asked by the Hilliard Museum of Art, which is connected to, is, is affiliated with the university, to um, bring a full, and I mean full and elaborate um, exhibit to the museum in 2020. And much of Elaine's work will be a part of that in addition to a reconstructed uh, Acadian living room or house, if you will, uh, complete with all the weaving tools. And we have eight satellite uh, exhibits going up at the same time. And those will be throughout Louisiana, starting with the historic New Orleans collection in, uh, in New Orleans, in the French Quarter, and then to Rural Life Museum at, on the LSU campus in Baton Rouge, our exhibit at the Hilliard Museum, and also um, an extension of that uh, will be at the Lafayette Science Museum and several um, uh, restored houses that are historic restored and, uh, and Vermilionville as well, and of the tourism department of just everyone within those 12 parishes has just been remarkable. And so again, you know, we're, we just keep getting these green lights and we just keep moving forward. So we also have one of our farmers who's very interested in developing um, agro-tourism. And uh, he has 12 acres of land and will probably be successful in going off the grid within another couple of years. And he's he's planted our Acadian brown cotton um, along with uh, a prairie habitat and just about everything you could possibly imagine to uh, in a sustainable way. So um, it's, it's you know it's just grown in so many directions, Lashawn. I can't tell you, and I I think. I'm the one who's learned more than anyone because I came in really uh, knowing so very little and it's just been such a pleasure and such a joy in so many ways, just intellectually and making new friends and learning new things. So I, I think I'm the one who's benefited the most here, but we'll, we'll see. I, I want our farmers to succeed and that's a, a primary concern right now. Mm. That sounds amazing. And it's so great to hear that you kind of started off from this, you know, curious place. And that curiosity has really led you to not only um, discovering something incredibly interesting, but also finding ways to support and advocate for farmers and for homespun and more local textiles. Um Absolutely. Well, let me tell you another partner that we have. So we've grown from just being the, you know, the the little the short documentary film and a couple of, of interested folks to a much larger team. And one of the people involved, and I'm so proud of this, and I'm so happy for the connection, and I think it's going to benefit everyone, is the Acadiana Food Hub, which is uh, which was founded and is is run by Zach McMath, who has a big food background. And he, at, at the moment I met him, was very much involved with um, being the link between local farmers 
and the farm to table movement in the restaurants of Southwest Louisiana. So he really felt that there weren't, there's a lot of land in, in Louisiana and it's not being used to produce food. So he was, his, his mission was to make that happen and to give farmers a way to sell it. And um, uh, there is one small farmer's market in Lafayette every Saturday morning. And it, it's sadly not primarily food. It's, it's all kinds of wonderful things, in, including a great jam session but um, with, with Cajun music. But uh, the farmers are, are, are few. And so Zach has, has, has really, is really living his dream. And uh, farmers are growing more. He's got a huge warehouse and, uh, again, all kinds of storage facilities. So uh, the example he shared with me the first time I met him was he had a farmer who had a huge persimmon tree and he had so many, goodness, pounds and pounds of persimmons and and didn't really know what to do with them so Zach took them into his cold storage notified all of the farm to table restaurants that he had a whole shipment of persimmons and you know get ready for for persimmons in the fall and put it on your your menu and he's developed those contacts and does an amazing work also with um, uh, his uh, nonprofit providing food for um, the homeless in, um, in, in Southwest Louisiana. I guess they're, they're actually not homeless, but um, those that are underserved. So, uh, you know, we connected with him and he said, you know, this is a great secondary crop for my farmers. And if the cucumbers and the tomatoes don't make it, then we'll have some brown cotton. And, you know, as I said, we had we had just a little bit this, this last fall, our first harvest, but we're growing. And, um, uh, that's going to be more, and I, I am, you know, so pleased that we've been able to partner with people like this, and uh, uh, it, it's just been very exciting to work with his energy and his ideas, and 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 see where our project has moved forward. We got rained out the day of our graboterie, and so Zach offered his big giant warehouse, and we created a nice cozy little space, and he had uh, two twenty plug to plug in our table gin and his darling Kara, his now fiance, was making cornbread in in their incubator kitchen that they have available on a rental basis to people who are doing their own canning and preserves and once they've outgrown their business has outgrown their own kitchen in their own home, then Zach has these incubator kitchens. So, um, you know, I, as I said, we're just growing in so many different directions. It's, it's quite phenomenal. So you mentioned that there are heavy rains in southern Louisiana. And we also know that there's the history in Louisiana with Hurricane Katrina. And how have you and the farmers been able to navigate um, working with the terrain that is in southern Louisiana, New Orleans. Right. Um, well, that it, it was a problem last year, and we think that our yield was probably much diminished because of extremely heavy rains for about a solid three months. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was really interesting. Jerry Hale who's one of our farmers, and uh, he, he said, well, you know, we're all getting a real good insight as to what life 
of a farmer is like and how dependent we are on on the climate and soil conditions and so on. But uh, he found that because of the rain and the heat, that a lot of the seeds were germinating uh, at a very early stage while they were still inside the bowls. And this, of course, then renders the cotton unusable and doesn't allow it to grow into the nice fluffy brown cloud-like formations. Um, but uh, the, other, the other factor involved there was that we got, uh, Jerry did, and he's in Brobridge, which is, oh, maybe about five, ten miles, between five and ten miles outside of Lafayette, um, that he got very large plants, so big, tall, leafy structures, if you will, um, and not not as much uh, cotton as we would have liked. So um, the, I, I think I did mention that the cotton was grown both in the prairie of southwest Louisiana and also along the bayous. And now at Vermilionville, they planted. Uh, they've been planting for a good long while, as they are. Uh, their, their whole mission is to recreate and to do reenactments, historic reenactments. And they have an entire Acadian village rebuilt from, uh, I think it's start, earliest building is 1750, something like that. So they've been planting brown cotton right along the banks of the Vermilion River. And when this big storm hit and it was flooded, uh, the cotton was completely covered. And uh, lo and behold, you know, the waters receded and that cotton was still there and it's still produced. So, you know, we think we have a real hardy strain here and, uh, and are doing our, our best to preserve that seed. Um, but anyway, it, it is, it's difficult. And um, I have been going to Mexico to visit with the cotton producers, the brown cotton producers there. And uh, my first trip focused on the weavers and the women's co-ops that are producing just phenomenal work. And then this last January, I visited with the farmers and actually went out into the fields, which was lots of fun, a bit treacherous, <laughs> but never mind. We did it. We got up that we got up that mountainside and had wonderful conversations via three-way translators because many of these folks do not speak Spanish. They speak their native languages of Amuzco and Zapotec. But each village that I visited assured me that they use neither fertilizers nor do they use insecticides or herbicides and they do not irrigate. Their, their, their planting period is slightly different than uh, what we do in southwest Louisiana, the time that we plant, but the conditions are pretty much the same. I think it does, in their dry season they get a bit drier than we do in Louisiana, but um, uh, so we as I mentioned earlier, are really trying to do this in a sustainable way and make whatever we produce attractive to the folks who are interested in buying organic and sustainable goods. So, uh, you know, we're trying to follow in their footsteps. And uh, I, I had a wonderful uh, presentation in the central uh, coast of California a couple of weeks ago. And uh the, the attendees were very well versed in weaving traditions and, and excellent weavers as well. But 
um, you know, they had lots of interesting questions about the how and the whys and the early history of this. And, and I, I came to the conclusion right there on the spot that, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of so many people, uh, the, the, the descendants of these Acadian settlers, uh, our, our Mexican cohorts in, in, uh, in, in, southern Oaxaca in the mountains there on the on the um, on the coastal Oaxaca area and uh, learning so much and trying to put it all together and I, I'm hoping that we can include some of the Mexican cotton uh, in one of the satellite exhibits that we'll be doing in 2020. Wow that sounds amazing and super exciting. It certainly has been for me. Um, One thing that has come up for me a few weeks ago, I spoke with Sally Fox about her experience growing naturally colored cotton and in her journey to bringing the cotton to a commercial setting, she got a lot of pushback from people who did not desire naturally colored cotton. Uh, There was a sort of energy that wished to look at the cotton in a way that it was connected to um, ancestral knowledge in a way that's so distant from current cotton production methods. And so I'm just curious because your story is so different from hers um, or your journey is so different from hers. If you guys have had any of those types of experiences surrounding growing cotton that is naturally colored. Well, you know, actually we haven't, and uh, I, I attribute that to the fact that we have aligned ourselves and have been in conversation with the State Department of Agriculture and Forestry from the very from day one. The minute we had that very first um, World Cafe conversations that matter, uh, Mark Bordelon, who's our agent there, uh, he attended. He just laid out the rules and regulations and the whys and the what would happen. And, you know, they just come out once a month, they put a trap on your cotton plants. And, um, uh, if there's a, and they come out once a month and they check. And if there is a boll weevil, then their next step is to put out more traps. There has not been a boll weevil in Southwest Louisiana. I believe he said the last single one to 10, it was a single one detected pardon me, was in, in uh, 1998. And they we are so far away from the commercially grown white cotton in Louisiana that it really is a non-issue. But because we've always included, we, we want to do this right. And um, I, I think, you know, most of the industry, the, the mills and set, uh, were outsourced in the 90s. And so, and, and of course, the number of, of home weavers and people who are still observing this tradition of, of weaving a dowry, that the last dowry that we know that was actually woven um, for a, a daughter who was getting married was in the 1950s. And Elaine has recorded that those pieces. So we have that only in documentation. It's the... The trousseau is no longer together. It was distributed throughout the family. So, you know, we don't know. 
I, I, I honestly and truly, I think again, I'm going to rely on Amy and her, her, her wisdom of taking baby steps. If we can grow enough, maybe we will become a threat to someone. I, that I can't answer, but so far I know we've done this right. And, um, uh, folks are, are really, uh, oh my goodness. We have our wonderful Mavis Frugge out in Arneville who wants to plant a considerable amount, like maybe five 100 foot rows. And she got wind that, um, uh, uh, someone was going to plant soybean and spray and it would be less than a hundred, the required hundred feet away. And don't you know, she said, okay, then I'm not planting on that end of my, my field. I'm going to go way down to the other end and I'm going to have my, my helping hand, uh, prepare that soil for planting. And so, you know, that's just incredible to me. And people are taking this seriously. And as I said, we're, we're trying to do it the right way. And I, there's some um, resistance to becoming organic and organic certification, which is not an easy thing to achieve. But we're also in contact with the ag department at LSU and being well, uh, how could I say that sort of sort of uh, monitored by them and counseled by them? You know, what 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 would be the first steps? How can we be the first steps? How can we avoid any kind of insect hardy? It's not really subject to infest insect infestation. So um, we say we are learning our way forward, and and that's at every level. So. Um, uh, I, I don't know that um, that we're going to get a big commercial response to this. That would be wonderful if we did. But, um, you know, if we can just develop some kind of a, a small cottage industry, and uh, I, I'd be very happy with that. And I think most of the growers would be as well. We have a new uh, a new contact, an artist, uh, we're actually a very well known artist in in Louisiana, who is uh, branching out into the textile, uh, printed textiles using his designs. And uh, we're in conversation with him now. It's Francis Pavi. Um, to see if we could produce enough of our brown cotton that he could use this our fabric then as the background for his designs for home textiles and you know that just happened last week so i i got a telephone call and you know he's um, a muralist and he is uh, a painter and he has designed several um, cd covers for very well-known uh, cajun musicians Beausoleil being one of them and michael Doucet who gave me the rights to his music for my film and is also looking to uh, plant cotton. He has 40 acres and he'd like to give us 10 of those. And, uh, you know, again, it's just that every step of the way we're, we're green lighted and, and are met with such encouragement. And, um, and really, I think it's, um, uh, there's a new pride in, in, this particular part of the culture, which was very much overlooked. As I said, I've been in costumes and textiles for 
over 40 years and uh, never knew there was a 250-year-old weaving tradition in, in Louisiana. So um, I, everyone who hears this story is equally as as pleased and delighted as I was when I first encountered it. And that gives us the encouragement and then the wherewithal to keep moving forward and learning every step of the way. Amazing, amazing. Um, so you've mentioned a lot of your collaborations and projects that you're working on. Is there anything specifically that you want to let our listeners know that you're working on right now that they can support? Well, um, you know, we're just trying to encourage more farmers. And as I said, we did increase the number of farmers we have this year, and we're looking for a greater uh, yield. And <clears throat> I don't think that we're going to be able to, uh, we'd like to, we'd like to spin roving so that that's what a lot of the people on our, our Facebook page and website said they were interested in would be a cotton roving. And, um, We'd like to do that, and I'm looking at, hopefully by this afternoon, I will have contacted uh, Gaston College in North Carolina, and they will do small batches of cotton. It would just be the transportation getting it up there, and uh, that would certainly be something that we'd be looking for support, advice, expertise, knowledge. Maybe if we have to rent a truck and, and drive it up there, you know, I might need somebody to go with me. <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all kind of that 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 at that level with Sean so uh but that is our next step and we are looking for a mill that will do small runs and and eventually we'd like to do that all in southwest Louisiana so um anybody listening who has any ideas or hints or suggestions we would welcome that amazing so one question before you go um, that we ask everyone who joins the podcast is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Oh, I think it's just follow your passion, you know, and keep it going. I think we're, we're entering a time in, in our in our world and on our planet when all of these skills are so necessary. Amazing. Thank you again for joining the podcast. That's a wrap. As you all know, I have an especially soft spot for cotton. So I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as Sharon and I enjoyed talking with one another. I highly suggest you keep up with her progress as well as support her documentary film in the Acadian Brown Cotton Field to Fashion Project. You can find links to the projects we discussed at www justyarn.com slash episode dash 64. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Jennifer Moore, an experienced weaver and teacher and the author of the much beloved book, The Weaver Studio, Double Weave. Tune in next Monday for that episode. Until next time, happy weaving.